Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. Hey folks, before we get into this episode, I just got to apologize uh, the sound is a little messed up. Uh, Paul sounds great, but my voice bleeds through on his recording, so you hear me twice. Um, Paul sounds fantastic, and this is a great interview, so please listen to it anyways. Just uh, know that you're going to hear me twice on my questions, and I apologize for that. I did what I could to clean it up, but it's pretty messed up. Anyways, Paul's great. Thanks. Welcome to this special edition of Postcards from a Dying World. I'm really excited to have my guest here. Paul Mayhern is a really important person in the music scene or in the history of punk rock in my home state of Indiana. Uh, he was lead vocalist, I believe, right, of um, the Zero Boys, which is one of the seminal hardcore bands, punk rock bands of Indiana and a huge influence on my novel, Punk Rock Ghost Story. They were referenced in, in, and I believe quoted at the beginning of the book. I'd have to look and, and see, but uh, <laughs> they were a huge part of the inspiration for that. So Paul, welcome to the podcast. It's very exciting to have you here. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me. Now we're gonna be talking about a class you're teaching at IU, but let's get into your background, where you come from, where you grew up, and how you got into punk rock, because that's what we're going to be talking about mostly today. Because you're, you're old okay. school, right? How did you get into punk rock? <clears throat> uh, well, let's see. So I was born in 63, and I have older brothers and sisters. So when I was very young, they were teenagers and uh, very much into, you know, 60s, bands like the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. And so f from very early on, I was very aware of the impact of music on teenagers. And I was just fascinated by it. So I started my own record collection pretty young with some uh, Jackson 5, 7 inches and things like that. It was very much into uh, the Motown vibe. And then eventually... We moved from Indianapolis to Chicago when I was in third grade. A few years later, I started to get more into heavier stuff, like metal stuff, like Black Sabbath. And, you know, there was a little bit of a Elton John, David Bowie period there. But I was a record collector pretty early on and just got into like heavier and heavier stuff. You know, I was way into Kiss and, you know, a little one bit does into Aerosmith. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And uh, then I moved back to Indianapolis to go to high school. But uh, at some point before I moved back, I became aware of the Ramones. But it wasn't until I saw the Sex Pistols on the cover of Cream Magazine, or maybe in an article in Cream Magazine, that it really hit me that punk rock was something significantly different than what I had been listening to, at least in my mind it was. And what appealed to me the most was it seemed to be laughing at the rest of my record collection. It seemed to immediately right. form some sort of, you know, hierarchy based on on uh, sarcasm and cynicism about rock and roll. And and I just loved that. 
And so, you know, I got into, you know, by 1977, I was pretty heavily into punk rock. I was at a very large high school in Indianapolis. I was the only punk rocker there out of 5,000 people at first until I recruited some members for my first band. Now, was and that those the Zero Boys just, or did you do a band before the Zero Boys? Uh, no, before that I was in a band called 3PM. Mm-hmm. It was a high school band. Uh, and we mostly, it was just to rehearse, you know, we've just rehearsed, but we started writing material immediately. And it was at a house party thrown by that band that the Zero Boys scouted me. So the guys from the Zero Boys came to a, a house party that we're putting on. They were looking for a singer. And so they recruited mm-hmm. me out of that band. Those guys are all a bit older, you know, eight to 10 years older than me. So I was you know, 16 and they were 23 and they'd all been in bands before and were really master musicians, mm-hmm. which is, I think, the big the part of the formula for the Zero Boys. Is you've got like a snotty little kid who is not afraid to say whatever is on his mind. And, and then you've got these older guys who've, you know, been playing funk and rock and glam, you know, for since they were 13, 14, 15 years old. And they're they're pretty good players. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of people, if they just, if they're asked what was the first punk band in Indiana, a lot of times they'll just default say the Zero Boys, because you you guys were the first band to really put the scene big on the map nationally. But there were a lot of other bands doing things like the Gizmos and and Dow Jones and the Industrials, and and there there was stuff going on before you guys, right? So there was already a little scene for you know, more than people give Indiana credit for a lot of times if you don't know, right? Um, So it was a pretty active Absolutely. Yeah. So there was Gulcher Records in Bloomington. Um, They released records by MX80, amazing, like, pre-slash-post-punk band, The Gizmos. Uh, And then in Lafayette, there was Dow Jones and the Industrials. And in Indianapolis, there was a band called the Latex Novelties. Um... So there was definitely, it was definitely going on uh, Mm -hmm. before the Zero Boys formed. But I didn't see the gizmos until a little bit later. But I Mm -hmm. did, I was a huge fan of Dow Jones and the Industrials and went to several of their shows. And and that was a real kicker for me. That I think it was at those Dow Jones shows that I realized that like a little local show with 100 people could be even more exciting than an arena show right seeing black sabbath or whatever it's like that's i think that that they were a big part of making me realize that like this this kind of street level thing was was cooler Mm -hmm. and so the thing with the zero boys and you you hit on this too is that the musicianship for for a punk band was 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 really 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 good you know for for my money there there's there's a couple classics living in the 80s civilization's dying like a couple like you know, Vicious Circle, like there's a couple just like undeniable punk rock classics. Um, and that's me saying it, right? But what was it like being a part of that unit uh, and writing it at the time? Did you just think you were having fun or did you did you know you guys had something special cooking at the time? Uh, <clears throat> well, we put out an EP called Living in the 80s first. Uh, and we had our original bass player, John Mitchell, 
left the band. And then we got Tufty, David Clough. And his musicianship was, you know, uh, at a pretty high level. And at that moment, we started writing Vicious Circle. We were listening to a lot of bands like the Circle Jerks and the Dead Kennedys and Germs. Um, and and started playing faster. But when we went, when we were preparing to record Vicious Circle, we rehearsed every day for at least a month, mm-hmm. hours. And we did the whole record. We demoed the whole record on four track first. So we were more prepared than almost any band I've recorded since then. Right. And we recorded that record. We recorded that record in a day and mixed it maybe a day and a half and mixed it in like half a day or something like that. So it was it was all preparation, all rehearsal. Um, And then in the studios, it was just it was just about performance. I mean, we thought it was great. I had very little perspective on it. I mean, I certainly didn't think we were going to, you know, quit our day jobs because nobody in the punk scene at that time was able to quit their day jobs. Right. Then we we sent the record was going to come out on Gulture, but we sent him a copy of the completed record and he turned it down. So, you know, there we were with Vicious, Vicious Circle starts off by being turned down by the record company that promised to put it out. Yikes. Um so well, I think at that moment I think <laughs> He just didn't, he didn't get it, you know, like Gulture was more of a traditional punk label. We played really fast. There was a real, I think that there's a, at this point, it doesn't feel so much like it, but there was a real difference in vibe between punk and, you know, what becomes hardcore. Right. And as the, I think that, you know, hardcore was appealing to a, a significantly younger audience and uh bob richard he just didn't he didn't get it you know in the same way that the zero boys once we started playing faster none of the kind of traditional punk slash new wave fans in indianapolis really wanted to see us anymore yeah well it's funny too because we look back on now we think of it as a seminal record and and the idea that it it got rejected is is crazy so before we get into how it came out where were you guys practicing? What was what was the Zero Boys practicing every day for a month? Was that somebody's basement? Where were you guys doing that? Yeah, we had a, a friend of ours who was kind of our manager, or co-manager, Marvin Goldstein. Uh, he was very supportive. And his brother, Sam, had a garage attached to his house. And we would go over there, and when when he was at when his brother was at work, mostly we would just practice in the garage. So we had a little PA in there, and and just would just have at it every day, every day that we possibly could. (laughs) Right. Well, you know, there's something something to be said for those days. There's just magical, like coming together things, you know. And and I think a lot of bands nowadays have practice spaces, you know, not just garages, (laughs) right? Yeah, I don't know. I think that the success in anything is, is, you know, definitely tied to tenacity. I think that the Zero Boys in that moment were extremely tenacious. Um, I, I think it's harder to find people who want to carve out their entire existence uh, and, and dedicate it to playing music. 
but when they do you know that's when that's when special things happen yeah yeah so eventually you had to find somebody to put it out what was what was what went on with that well there were a lot of labels you know all over the country kind of popping up and that were putting out american hardcore records punk records and we sent a copy of the tape you know the demo to all of them frontier slash probably alternative tentacles you know discord obviously discord passed because they you know they're a regional label right and uh but we got posh i think we sent it to posh boy we we got rejected you know by all the labels and then eventually um our other manager bill levin managed to come up with enough money to press like two thousand copies so we just made we did the record ourselves mm-hmm. and then you know very slowly was it we're able to build a little bit of a following in in boston and philadelphia and we did a little bit of a, an east coast tour and um, kind of find, found some like-minded people. You know, back then it was all about getting reviewed in, the, in the, you know, Boston Rocker or, uh, you know, in the fanzines, right. you know, which was a pretty slow process. Eventually, you know, um, this this record would go on to become a classic, but at the time, it, I'm sure it felt like of, of, of like getting record. around the country. Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, that record in a lot of ways is has got much more pop elements than a lot of American hardcore from the time. Mm-hmm. And I think that there were certain people who thought that we were what we were doing was not hard enough. So mm-hmm. it was like it was hard for us. You know, the closest big city to us was Chicago, <clears throat> but. Uh, it was hard for us to get on bills in Chicago because we weren't we weren't hardcore enough. You know, there was this mm. pop element. But then, you know, in our city, we had turned into this thing that was too hard. We were definitely stuck between, you know, two worlds. And I think it really that record didn't begin to see much success until, you know, later generations of people who had kind of maybe grown up on pop punk and stuff like that, you know, that I always had this theory that like, you know, by the time that Green Day comes around, those Mm -hmm. guys Mm -hmm. listen to Vicious Circle, you know, and they like get it because they have like pop sensibilities and they're removed from it and it feels like an archival item, you know, so... And then people who are into those kind of bands, American pop punk bands, you know, if you become a serious enough fan, you go from Green Day to maybe the Descendants. And then once you're into the Descendants, maybe somebody turns you on to the Zero Boys and there's like a lineage there. And you're like, oh, this is a fucking, this is a great record. I get this record. It's got pop elements, but it's really fast. But at the time we couldn't get arrested. Like, right. you know, we had very few successful shows. We did have a really great show in Torrance, California at the barn. Jello was a fan and mm-hmm. he put us on a bill that was like Minor Threat, Zero Boys, MDC and the Dead Kennedys, and a wow. couple of other bands. And that was, you know, that was the first time we played in front of a thousand people or whatever it was. It was the first time we witnessed like, you know, serious stage diving. Right. But back home, you know, we have to put on our own shows and, you know, we were lucky if there'd be 150 people there. Right. Well, and 
how Zero Boys were introduced to me was once I started to get into punk rock and and it was funny because the, the when you start that early wave of punk rock you almost think of bands regionally like this is the band this is the big band from dc this is the big band from these are some of the big bands from boston and the first time the zero boys were introduced to me a friend said oh this is our circle jerks this is the band from indiana that was kind of the early our, our early 80s band right and so this would have been 89 you know probably and i remember hearing it and just you know immediately being like this this is really awesome and and it's funny because the impact that you guys had i think sometimes like there's weird ways where you see the impact that you know the fact that like a big new york city hardcore band like leeway covers civilizations dying right like that's just Mm -hmm. you know cool but it's just you know it's a side of respect that you guys probably weren't feeling when you were doing the band at the time at all. Yeah, definitely not. We were, it, it took a long time. It took your exact generation, I think, to, to really kind of get it. Um, because it just felt enough removed. <laughs> oh yeah. We were long gone by that time. Yeah. At least, you know, yeah. at that point, but we've yeah. had, you know, a lot of people have covered that song. That's been great. Um, it's been great to see that the music has some, you know, some sustaining power. And, uh, you know, we've, we've seen, like, the last time Metallica played in Indianapolis, they played a couple of Zero Boys songs. What? So, I did not hear that. Right. Yeah. Was- I mean, they do, they did this, in, they did this in a couple of cities at least, where it's like a couple of members leave. Um, and then a couple of members stay on stage and they kind of blast through a couple of like local songs and they did a melon camp song or something. And then they did a couple zero boys songs. So mm-hmm. it's like, you know, it's great. You know, the hives covered civilizations dying on an EP several years ago. And I guess that was a pretty big thing as well. Uh, as a record fan, a fan of recorded music and somebody who understands the staying power of of a piece of vinyl or a recording that's really really special to me because some of my favorite records are records that are really way before my generation and so i get it like you know so i get it like you know maybe my favorite record of all time is easter everywhere by the 13th floor elevators that's not my generation you know that's like that is in some ways a lot like the zero boys where it's like it's you know it's like a psychedelic record but it's not a it wasn't a popular one at the time mm-hmm. now it's gone on to be a very and you know people recognize it as extremely influential and stuff like that but so i get it but i feel very removed from it like i don't really necessarily feel like the 16 year old who wrote the lyrics to vicious circle you know i i see it that was so long ago it hardly seems like me <laughs> right right well, a new generation is one of my favorites. Um, uh, I, I I have a lot of a lot of love for that record, and I, I think you're right that it just um, it's it's a good stamp in time. But you know, even bands that were popular in that back in the day, I don't think people realize. For example, like Minor Threat is, you know, so well loved today in a way that I don't. You know, I don't think they were at the time, but people like look back on that. And I think one of the reasons why is because 
they didn't constantly do reunion shows. There's never been a, a minor threat reunion show. So I think in some ways that that band sticks in history in a really interesting and, and, and cool way. Not that, you know, mm-hmm. like you guys have gotten back together and done shows and that's really cool. But um, the Descendants, for example, are back doing shows and it doesn't take away from what they, what they were doing. But I think Minor Threat being just a like a, a part of history and only part of history, I think, is, a, is an interesting thing to look at. So. Mm-hmm. But, well, Minor Threat made uh, some of my favorite records of all time. I would put them in my top five American white rock bands of any genre, period. Um, And they broke up at a moment where they were, everybody thought, well, this, if, if this music is going to become popular, it's probably this band. If the Zero Boys had been as popular as Minor Threat at that moment, we probably would have stayed together. (laughs) Uh, Because they really, they were, Everybody was talking about Minor Threat. I mean, it was still a pretty small scene, but uh, their star was shining pretty bright at the moment that they gave up. Yeah. And we'll get into the whole history of punk rock thing, too. But I I think, um, you know, it's it's really interesting, too, because if you've got bands like Black Flag that are coming out of L.A. and you've got Dead Kennedys coming out of the Bay Area, I think there's a special bit of struggle to being a band from like say a Toledo or an Indianapolis or you know one of these smaller cities because you guys don't come with a scene and and one of the things that I wanted to talk about in in my novel Punk Rock Ghost Story was the difference between the era when punk rockers even still in the late 80s like the the rednecks and jocks wanted us dead right we weren't the cool kids in school like post Nirvana right and so it was like, you know, growing up in the Midwest, I don't know what it was like on the East Coast or West Coast, but in the Midwest, people wanted us dead. And you're only going to get 100 people at a show if you're lucky. Sometimes you'll have shows with 20 people and you have to continue to act like you're super excited about it. Let's remember Green Day's first show in Bloomington had eight people, of one of which was me, <laughs> you know? Oh, you were at that show. Great. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. I was I was at that show. Evan made sure I went. <laughs> But uh, the Midwest, like it was a special struggle, I think, that I think made made the bands have like a different edge. What do you think about that idea? I mean, I think that that's very possible, but I don't want to make light of the struggle of a band like Black Flag. Uh, You know, those guys, they they really trudged the path that so many people have you know, followed since them, you know, they're the ones that toured and toured and toured and toured and slept on floors and ate next to nothing. And, you know, so they really, uh, I have a great deal of respect for them, but back in their hometown, were they playing larger shows? Yes. You know, like did the fact that LA or Los, you know, that area have like a, an entertainment industry have some sort of an impact on that? That yes, probably less so in DC, mm-hmm. but uh, but in, you know in Indianapolis there was no place to play. You know you you there wasn't a nine thirty club. You know there was you had to put on a show with build a stage in an old dog school dog training school to put on a show you know everything or or just in basements 
so yes, this, the struggle was probably a little bit greater. Um, but then on top of that, you also have like a kind of a Midwestern laziness. People are just more content. You know, if I had to list all of the amazing bands over the years that have come from Indiana and just broke up instead of went out and toured, you know, mm-hmm. including the Zero Boys, the list would be extremely long. So maybe Midwesterners are also not as tenacious as they should be. Well, and that's some of those bands that you see that, that break through from 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 the Midwest and do that. That's like, you know they have that different vibe or you know whatever going on all right so what happened when the zero boys broke up like where did you go next well when the zero boys broke up i had my first child when i was 20. very early on i had to be kind of a responsible parent i really loved the recording process so um i trained myself to be an audio engineer and started making recordings and you know i made some punk records i made that master tape compilation album that was kind of the first record that i trained myself as an engineer on and then i made uh that raw power album screams from the gutter which i think is one of my favorite records that i've ever made kind of focused mostly on punk rock um, but then kind of branched out and did a lot of there's a big gospel and R&B scene in Indianapolis, especially at the time. So I made a lot of records for a couple of labels that were putting out those things. And I really focused on just kind of training myself in, in the craft of record making. Um, and then I was in a couple of bands. I was in a band called uh, Dandelion Abortion. Uh, and then I was in a band called Detura Seeds. And these are bands that are, you know, they still have a lot of punk energy, but they're a little more s- pop psychedelic or something. Uh, and then that's kind of just where I, what I've been doing this whole time is like making records. And I've always got some kind of little side band or something that I'm working on and and raising kids. Yeah, but you also got into teaching, right? So was it through yeah. the... the- music angle or like like how did that happen first i live in bloomington and so indiana university is here it's a state school it's a huge state school with a really really high-end music program the jacob school of music is a very very well respected classical music and jazz school um, especially in the undergrad uh, area you know people come from all over the world to study here And there's a program called the Music and General Studies. And a good friend of mine started teaching the history of rock and roll. One of the first history of rock and roll classes offered at a university like this in in the country. And it was very successful. And then a few years ago, he was getting ready to retire. And he was looking for somebody to come along to, to develop some new classes and maybe teach some of the classes that he was teaching and so i had a meeting with him his name is glenn gass and then another professor good friend of mine andy hollanden and we had a meeting and we talked about it and you know kind of came up with like okay well what could paul teach you know like what would i really feel comfortable teaching and that's when we decided well the history of punk rock and we could give that a try and so that's what so then i i built the course basically built the syllabus and then went in and talked to the people in charge of hiring people to teach classes 
and this woman, Connie Glenn, who was very supportive. It's interesting because these are classical music people and they bought it. They said, okay, do it. Let's try it. And so that's what I've been doing, you know, for the last, I think I started about five years ago or something like that. And then since then, I've also developed a class called the History of Music Production. So I teach two classes for the university now. Wow, that's really cool. So at this point, you've got a couple of classes that, that you're going to teach at IU. And that, that's a pretty exciting thing. Um, what was, had you ever taught before like these classes at the music school and on any, and not on any level at all before, or was this a totally new thing? Mm, yeah. So, uh, before this, I did teach some audio engineering classes. I taught an advanced mixing class, the audio engineering department. And then I taught like a basic audio engineering class for the media school. Um, but those weren't classes that I really developed. They were classes that kind of already existed and I came in and I taught them. Mm -hmm. This was different because I had to build these classes. They didn't exist. I, I, you know, as far as at a major music college, I don't think a class like the history of punk rock exists anywhere else in the world, at least probably not the way I'm teaching it. Um, yeah, which is one of the reasons why I was interested in talking about it. We'll get to yeah. that. You know what I realized I didn't dig into, which I want to, is what was it like for What's you growing, growing up in punk rock and rock and roll, recording like blues and gospels? And what did you learn from, from exploring those other genres with musicians that you could apply to the, to the genres you, you, you grew up on? Uh, well, I music, you know, really is all pretty much the same musicians are mostly the same they're beautiful magical awesome people it doesn't really like matter the style you know i became really good friends with a lot of people that you know never listened to punk rock don't even really know what punk rock is but it doesn't matter these are great people and we're working on on their art and so it didn't really matter to me it did at first you know i wanted to just make records that I wanted to make but because i was in a financial situation where i had to make money and i was kind of forced outside of that box that's when i really realized that like you know it, it doesn't really matter what what kind of music you're making as long as the people are good and they're trying at struggling at their craft and trying to make it better then i was all in for trying to help them with that yeah but i made a lot of records like the drum machines did you ever have experiences What's where you're that? like, let me tell you about punk rock and what you could learn from punk rock about um, improvising uh, and stuff like that? Not really so much, because most of those records outside of the genre of like punk rock or indie rock or whatever you want to call it, those were records that I was more engineering than producing. And so my role was just to help them, you know, capture what they were doing. And I would make suggestions but uh, I was, I'm a listener, you know, when it, in situations like that. So I would just listen and then try to help mm -hmm. mostly. No, one thing about teaching the history of punk rock that's really interesting to me. I had this experience when I had um, uh, Rob Pennington, Robert Pennington, who is most famous for singing for uh, Endpoint and By the Grace of God, some of the bigger hardcore bands to come out of Louisville. But Rob, an, uh -huh. an old school guy from the 80s, like like um, somewhere between, he's between my generation and your generation. 
I always knew the history of my local scene with bands like from the, from the late eighties with the walking ruins, the nids the you know, toxic reasons back to the zero boys, the Dow Jones, the industrials, the, this like ground zero, um, kind of grassroots historical thing. What I realized when I was talking to Rob is that Louisville has the same history for their scene, right? And I became really interested when I started realizing that because they had bands like Malignant Growth and bands that, that are their local bands. And I started getting really interested in the history of these old school people from all these different scenes. When I moved to Syracuse for college, I learned the history of their scene. And that was fascinating and interesting because it's a small city, not too far from New York City, but it might as well have been the Midwest for Syracuse, right? And so they had their own scene, right? And I learned it there. And then when I moved to San Diego, I learned not just Battalion of Saints, but like their history, right? And so I love the idea of studying the history of punk rock. And I know you're doing a more macro like kind of thing, but I, I'm really interested in seeing in the future, like it would be really cool to kind of dig down into the history of all these local scenes in, in an interesting way. But I think studying the history of punk rock is so important because we could lose all this information if people start dying and we don't, we don't have it written down. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. And so when you approach this, like I'm going to be teaching the history of punk rock, where do you start? Like what, what, what's your, your thought process on that? Well, um, I'm not a historian. Right. Um, I know, you know, I know what I know based on my own taste and what's come my way and my own record collection. But I learned pretty quick that I was a far cry from an, an actual historian. So I had to fill in a lot of gaps. So, you know, and that means, you know, reading and listening and then beginning to create an outline. Like, what are the important points? This is... This is a class that in one semester, I, le I lecture twice a week for an hour and 15 minutes. So there's 30 some classes, which mm -hmm. seems like a lot, but there's a lot to cover, you totally. know. So, you know, I begin with the kind of concept of what is the punk attitude in philosophy. So we talk about Diogenes, the cynic, the Greek philosopher, who's like, you know, uh, bring cynicism into light and and then you know we move into like uh like the 60s kind of garage rock bands and look at what might potentially be one of the first or the earliest punk rock songs that were recorded and then we go to detroit and we look at detroit and the stooges and the mc5 and the detroit riots and the whole time we're trying to look at like what is the environment that these things are created in and then we move, then we're in New York, you know, and, uh, you know, we're looking at the Ramones and Blondie and all that kind of stuff. And then eventually we get over to England and we look at all those bands and, you know, um, and then it goes, you know, into kind of like post-punk and then it goes into American hardcore. And it's, it's a lot of information, but it doesn't get too deeply into any particular group um, except for in the case of like the Ramones, I'll do a whole class on the Ramones. I do a whole class on the Sex Pistols. I do a whole class on the Clash, 
You know, I do a whole class on Nirvana, you know, um, but m mostly it's me covering a lot. And then also listening is a big component. So for every class, there's a playlist of 12 songs, 10 to 12 songs. So these students have to, they get tested on the lecture components and then they get text, tested on uh, musical identification. And over mm -hmm. the course of the semester, they have like 350 songs that they have to memorize well enough to be able to identify them from a 30 second clip. Mm -hmm. And then they also have to write about uh, the, the book that we use is Please Kill Me by Legs McNeil. So they they read from the book while we're in the New York scene and then they give us, you know, they give me perspectives. I ask questions about like what's going on and why. And, you know, then when we get to the anarcho-punk stuff, we talk a lot about anarchy and that, that sort of concept. When we get to the straight edge thing, we talk a lot about straight edge. And that's perfect because by the time we get to minor threat and straight edge, they've seen a shit ton of people die, right? <laughs> right. It's, it seems like it's a class about heroin addiction almost, you know, like that's like a that's a big component of like drug abuse and stuff. And so when you get to the to straight edge movement, it makes sense to them, even though these are kids who, if they're lucky, they have an uncle that listened to Blink-182. They are right. so removed. They are so removed. These are kids that have been born, you know, uh, since 2000 and two or something like that they're they're young people yeah uh and so you really have to spell the whole thing out for them like why is this important you know um yeah i had an interesting they don't have any information i have a millennial nephew who um who's very into sports and doesn't like music or art really in a lot of ways and i was trying to explain to him why hardcore was such a fundamental part of my life and why it was so important. And I tried to explain the feeling of stage diving and singing along to a song that, that means a lot to you. You know, he just had no context for it. He couldn't understand, extend it. But I, I'm assuming your students by the end of this class, like they, they, I'm sure some of them say, oh, I see now why you were so into it, right? I'm sure you've yeah. heard that many times. I think so, yeah. I have. There's a lot of people who get really turned on to punk rock, people who tell me things like classical musicians that will tell me things like, well, I didn't know, you know, two weeks into this class, I didn't think I was going to be able to make it. And then now at the end, I'm a, I'm a genuine fan. I love it. I get it. So right. there is a lot. I get really good reviews for the class. But, you know, there's the music component. There's, there's, you know, what's going on in the scenes that create the scenes. And then there's the overarching stuff, like the do-it-yourself thing, which I think they can really relate to because we live in a do-it-yourself world in, in a lot of ways that was in, greatly informed by the American hardcore scene. I think yeah. that the, the attitude that these kids have of like, I can do anything, you know, my degree doesn't define me. That's very much with this generation. So they, they do get drawn into the, those sorts of things about it. Yeah, and it's some of the scene, I, I will say now, look, I have a little bit of bias because I'm straight edge and I've been straight edge since 1989. But but with Minor Threat, I, there's some things that I think is so interesting about that scene, Minor Threat, Government Issue, like those bands that they, they were like, sons and daughters of politicians and and 
ambassadors and that they come from like these really intense places of privilege a lot of the kids in that scene and they all went to school with they were the the ones that got picked on by brent kavanaugh's you know exactly yeah it's just such a weird little anomaly of a scene that i think it's one that yeah, you know, that's one of the reasons why I'm really drawn to the DC scene, reading about it. Yet, you know? right? Yeah. Yet, that scene doesn't exist without the bad brains. Oh yeah, yeah. And I'm a huge bad brains. So, fan. so, so the I think the 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 punctum, the nexus of the DC scene was that those guys, and you see this in across the history of punk rock. You have to see somebody older do it or somebody older who's got the concepts they feed you some of these concepts um whether it's jamie reed and malcolm mclaren doing it to to john lydon or if it's penny rambeau doing it to the the members of crass you know there's always like some elder statesmen and in dc the elder statesmen were the bad brains brains, yeah so to see the bad brains i mean there's that story where I've heard Ian tell this story where the bad brains get their equipment stolen and they need a place to rehearse. And so they, the guys in minor threat, like let them come over to like Lyle's mother's house or something like that. And they're practicing in the basement and, uh, the guys in minor threat are like embarrassed because they feel like their equipment is so shitty. And then the bad brains get up and start playing on the same gear and they realize, Oh no, our equipment isn't shitty. We're just not nearly as good as the bad brains. When you see something like that, you immediately can become better. We need these kind of moments and these people in our lives to go like, this can be done. And as soon as you see it, you can you have a much better chance of doing it. So, and, you know, as much as I love the straight edge movement and I think it's very important, I think it's very interesting that even though these kids are mostly white, and come from privileged backgrounds, we're not talking about the bad brains. The ki- the fact that these kids are substance free, they're inspired by a band that was smoking weed like a motherfucker. Right. You know? So it's like, that's not really, you know, that's those things are not necessarily what's important when it comes down to the human to human connection yeah. mode. Well, listen, when, and, and, and you know, he gets, I know because I lived in Syracuse and I was very good friends with the Earth Crisis guys that there's this reputation that they're a bunch of macho, tough guy, like metalcore jocks, whereas Carl is just as much of a historian of the punk rock scene in Syracuse as as anybody and grew up on all the weed smoking bands, all the other stuff like he grew up on the Circle Jerks and Dead Kennedys and, you know, those bands are all just as important to him as Minor Threat and Youth of Today, right? So... Mm-hmm. You know, I think the old, the older school straight edge kids didn't have a straight edge scene or a wide one. They had to listen to everything, and they couldn't just mm-hmm. like exclusively just listen to 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 other other edge bands because it wasn't a thing. You know, there wasn't enough of them. Yet. Yeah, certainly they didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just just personally, yeah, I want to put that out there that I know Carl pretty well and. And he is so misunderstood. He he is an old school punk rocker, and he loves the history of the Syracuse scene. He's actually when you get him going on the history of like the old school bands and the and he just recently did a punk band called Apocalypse Tribe that's old school punk sounding. So, 
But anyways, uh -huh. yeah. So for teaching the history and doing this class, like it's got to be, I'm sure you kind of had to recontextualize the history that you already knew as a music nerd, right? <laughs> right. But actually sitting down and outlining it, do you feel like it changed your relationship with the history of punk rock? Like sitting down and doing absolutely. this? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think my relationship with punk rock changes ev after every or during every lecture. Right. So I've been teaching the class now for maybe three or four years. It took me, you know, months to build the class. But it wasn't until I started teaching it that I could tell whether or not what I was saying was being understood, you right. know? And so, and because of that, uh, even in those three years, the, the, the generation gets farther away from any relationship with punk rock. And so, um, you know, the, the goal becomes like, can I make this make sense and still be completely true to myself and true to the art form? But what is, what is universal here? So it becomes a study in like what's much what is what is universal about what we're we're dealing with um, and that and that hopefully anybody can relate to, including these kids that you know are so far removed from it. Right. I learn something every every single time. Oh, that's really. So if you're not talking about, really if you're not talking about Nirvana or Green Day, they don't know what you're talking about. Well, right. And I know from a context of when I, because I work with a lot of young people in my field, right? For me, like, the, you know, it's kind of a long running thing. It's like whenever Green Day is on the radio, when I'm around my, my young coworkers, I always have to tell them, hey, I saw that band in, in Bloomington, Indiana, in a warehouse with eight people, <laughs> you know? Yeah. They come from, they come from humble beginnings, <laughs> right? And, uh, you know, they, they just can't wrap their heads around it because Green Day is this huge band. But and I do think because and yes, I wrote a book about the difference between punk rock before Nirvana and punk rock after. So that's like a really interesting thing to me because and Rob and I talked about this in the interview that I did with him was that it was hard for a lot of us who grew up pre Nirvana and punk rock, even though I respect Nirvana individually as musicians, I like the music. It was hard for me to see the thing that I was getting beat up for for years, right? And taking all this kind of abuse suddenly become the thing that the cool kids were doing, right? And that was a hard transition for a little while where it was suddenly acceptable for, you know, dudes on the football team to, to have a mohawk or, you know, listen to music that, you know, or, you know, they knew who Mudhoney was all of a sudden. And I'm like, what? is going on so mm -hmm. you taught a whole class on nirvana so you had to talk about that weird transition like what how how did you relate to that before you wrote the class and then after doing the class like that whole nirvana shift yeah i i don't know that there was a big shift in my attitude towards what you're talking about uh i do th I, I recognize that right away i know that like up until that moment in time whether you were a punk rock band or an indie rock band or just like a freak band or an outsider you know like you knew if you went to see scratch acid in 1989 or whatever that those guys were only doing it because they really wanted to right i mean they weren't right. making any money 
the flaming lips at the time. You know, it's like there was there was no no one was making any money. So you knew for sure that you were on some level getting this pure th- thing that was not cut with capitalism. And that was a big important part of the scene for us. Yeah, that's um, a very good point. It was not as much so for people a little bit older than me because the Ramones were on basically a major label and they were trying to have major label success. The Pistols were on major labels. The Clash were hugely successful on major labels. And then you get look at bands like the Go-Go's or Joan Jett. These people sold millions of records. But then American Hardcore comes along and American Hardcore comes along at the exact moment that the capitalists are no longer interested so because of that it builds this huge do-it-yourself scene and that's very very important there's a big shift in the class in that moment you know it's like one section ends and another section begins and it begins with okay what's different here now the fans aren't in their 20s anymore the fans are mostly in their teens and nobody cares and nobody's making any money and then that builds slowly across that section up to Nirvana, but we see Nirvana hap- coming. We f- mm-hmm. we look at Sonic Youth when they're basically a no wave band and they're, you know, they're doing songs with Lydia Lunch, and then we slowly see them get signed to Geffen. We see it coming, and we talk a lot about capitalism and how capitalism. The goal is to make money, and as soon as they can make money, they're going to make money. So when Nirvana happens, nobody's surprised. They get it. It's like, ah, okay, this was coming all along, you know, but things are different. The the big part, I think, that hits my students and me about Nirvana is the tragedy of Kurt not having, like, all of his idols were having dead-end careers. Like, he had no, you know... His favorite bands, even the Pixies, who he loved, never had any real, real success. So it it just snuck up on him, you know, and, and I believe probably was part of the reason why he, you know, ended up taking his life. Or I don't know. I don't know that much about it personally. But I do know that if I had been, you know, basically a punk musician and I went from you know, just moving about freely to like not being able to walk down to the 7-Eleven and buy a Coke or a pack of cigarettes, that would be pretty devastating. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's big part of that. And I think that that's has become that idea has become more solidified. But I don't cover any of the bands that I think were signed because of Nirvana. Mm-hmm. None of them. Well, you Dave know, it's Grohl's, like, yes, Dave Grohl's, I, an, I, Dave Grohl's an interesting cat, too, because, you know, he was in Scream, right? And he came from the scene, yeah. uh-huh. but he seemed like kind of engineered or ready to be able to handle that success. He had a very gregarious personality from the beginning. And at the same time, like, I don't know that if you were watching Scream play in a basement, if you were looking at that drummer and saying this guy's going to be one of the biggest front men guitar players of all time, eventually. Mm-hmm. you know, and lead arena shows and, and all that. I don't know if you would have seen it, but it's interesting to see how Dave Grohl handled it. And, you know, obviously what happened with Kurt, it's like different way. Yeah. I mean, being, being too, you know, being 12 feet, 15 feet away from him, but uh, Kurt, you know, mm-hmm. Dave had an advantage of like seeing what is happening. And he probably just had a very different personality. I mean, yeah. It, it, this was certainly wasn't the only thing that that did Kurt in, but, but, you know, yeah, 
Well, and you know, then talking Green... about our art, talking about art. I mean, God love Dave Grohl. He seems like a really, really, really great guy. Uh, yeah. But he's not in the same universe as Kurt Cobain. You know. No, I'm and sorry. I don't. Yeah, yeah. And I do think Dave Grohl has given back in a large way, like you know, playing Squirrel Bait songs in arenas and you know, doing that that kind of thing is and Nick the way he supported Naked Ray Gun and you know and all that. Mm-hmm. It's Absolutely. Cool. Yeah, and and it so I give cool. him a lot of credit, and and I actually love his weird metal record, the Probot record. That I wish he'd done an entire album that he with the singer of Voivod because that song he did with the singer of Voivod is incredible. Uh-huh. <laughs> but but yeah, so I the thing about teaching this class too. So you'll I'm sure you get into so that transitional period for you know with the Ramones and the Sex Pistols. You say you do entire classes on them. I I want to kind of get it into. I'm not actually truth be told. I've never been able to to enjoy the Ramones, and I don't. People give me shit for it like all the time because they're like. Like, how can you not like the Ramones? I just, for whatever reason, the Ramones never clicked with me. However, I am interested in what teaching an entire class about the Ramones is like. Do you do you take a couple songs? Do you do you play them in the class, or do you expect the students to to have heard them before they come to the class? How does that work? Well, this is yeah, this is the interesting thing. It's like I I teach a whole class on the Ramones, and I only cover their first five albums. Right. You know, so it starts with the Ramones and it ends with End of the Century, the record they do with Phil Spector. I mean, their 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 catalog's too big. And in general, I look at a couple of songs per record. You know, I'll play the song, I'll throw the lyrics up on on the keynote lecture, and we'll talk about the lyrics. And to me, when I started when I started thinking about the class, the first thing I thought was like, let's get an outline of what is punk. Mm-hmm. You know, and and so. To me, high on the list of what is punk, right up there with anarchic, you know, and uh, aggressive and all that kind of stuff is sense of humor. Yeah. So yeah. to me, if a band doesn't, if, if it's not funny or there's not a sense of humor, it, it's it's way less interesting to me. And it's also kind of falls outside of what I think punk is. And so the Ramones are funny as fuck. And they have all these amazing cultural references, things about, you know, went down to Frisco, joined the SLA, the Symbionese Liberation Army. You know, they have these, you know, they're, they're singing about Judy is a headbanger and her mother is a geek, you know? And it's like, there's so there's all this like, kind of underground culture stuff weaved into their song. So there's a lot to unpack, even though it's very funny and it's very simple. So when I'm talking about the Ramones, it's it's a lot. It's about that sort of thing. And then I think that Joey Ramone is one of the best song stylists. I would put him up there with Frank Sinatra and James Brown and Elvis Presley. I think that he is that good of a singer. So there's just, there's a lot. I think even if you weren't a Ramones fan, if you took that class with me at the end, you would probably have uh, a broader understanding of why they might be important. And I'm not saying that you would then love the Ramones, but right. it's hard oh, to imagine someone not... Yeah, Yeah, I understand how important they are. I just never was, was a big fan. No, no, two bands. Yeah, the other thing... Go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say the other thing that's so interesting about that story across those five records is they go from barely being able to put it together to being, I mean, they just get better. 
and also very consistent. Consistent like ACDC. You know how like ACDC records all yeah. sound kind of like the same record over and over again? That's that's a, a piece of magic, you know, that the Ramones also were able to do. Like we've we are so defined that we don't have to like develop outside of what we naturally are. Anyway, enough yeah. of that. No, no, two bands that I, if I was teaching a class, I, I think, you know, Black Flag and the Dead Kennedys would be very hard for me to know. I want to make the argument for why I think the Dead Kennedys are like kind of a miracle thing. You know, the musicianship in the Dead Kennedys and the original lineup, and that's, and it's most evident when you hear Bedtime for Democracy, which is not, is the worst Dead Kennedys record because it doesn't have that musical flair that the other ones do. It doesn't have the same lineup, if, if I understand correctly the history of it. But the combination of pol politics, satire, musical skill, and just the, the kind of circus that was involved with the Dead Kennedys, like, I just feel like they were kind of a miracle of timing, time, place, and human beings coming together. And I would have a, I, I wonder what you do with the Dead Kennedys in, in your class, because I feel like they're so important for that early 80s, like, they, yeah, they are so important. So when it comes to American hardcore, the class is divided up into three segments. I, I cover like the West Coast hardcore stuff, and then I cover the East Coast hardcore stuff, and then I do Midwestern hardcore stuff. So the Dead Kennedys don't get enough time. I play a couple of songs, both from Fresh Fruit from Rotting Vegetables, and I point out that like, you know, so much of punk rock is this minimalism. And a lot of times, you know, you have these great songs where like there's very few lyrics, you know, like Minor Threat were masters of like saying a whole lot with very few words. This is very much like the Stooges or the Ramones, right? What Jello does on the Dead Kennedys records is he's very verbose, much more like a, a real poet, like a Patti Smith. You know, she's another person that we cover who's very verbose. So we talk about that a lot. And then we talk about, you know, what is he talking about in Holiday in Cambodia? Like, what is the political situation that he's referencing? And how do we feel about how he's referencing it? And who is that song about? Because ultimately, it's one of the great songs that's really about the students that I'm teaching. You know, he's basically directly pointing the finger at like privileged college students who, you know, graduate and think they know what's going on. But there's this other thing going on in the world. And our world is exactly like that still today. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not necessarily those exact situations, but you're sitting in a room. How ridiculous is this? You're sitting in a room listening to some old white guy with white hair talk to you about punk rock. You think you're going to leave this class and know anything, yet there are places in the world where the struggle is absolutely fucking real. And that's what this song is about. Mm -hmm. So that's that's how I approach the Dead Kennedys in the lessons, you know, that that Jello presents. You know, it's it's like real world shit and it's really, really smart and it's really, really funny. See, yeah. if it was that smart, but it wasn't funny. I wouldn't be interest, as interested. Well, and that's what I think people that, real why they couldn't re repeat the Dead Kennedys without Jello. Why they couldn't just get another singer and do it is no, that that's absurd. It's absurd to think of that. Yes, and my hot take is I think Plastic Surgery Disasters is their best record. But um, and I will say Nazi Punks Fuck Off was my first punk rock song, so they they have a special place in my heart for for that too. But 
Um, what about the misfits? Because I have we haven't talked about the misfits, and and I think I would I, I would have a hard time not talking a lot about the misfits, even though Glenn Danzig is kind of a he's Glenn Danzig, you know. But the misfits, the li- the mis the misfits get a fair amount of time in the class. They don't get a whole class, but probably almost a third. But again, I cover all the early stuff, you know, like I I the all everything I play is you know, the singles before Earth AD. Because part of my concept is, I'm gonna tell you about this band. I'm gonna tell you what I'm excited about. I'm gonna put their songs on the playlist. Hopefully one of these bands is gonna appeal to you and you're gonna have a whole lot of music that you can go and discover yourself. So mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't try to be a, com- you know, to be a completist with, yeah. with, with this thing. It's just like, I'm just trying to give you a taste of all these things. Um, I think the the misfits are the kids. They respond to the misfits, and the thing that's weird is it's like you know I throw up that Crimson Ghost logo, and I'm like, have you seen this? And they're all like, yeah, we know that. I'm like, but do you know what what it is? And like, mm-hmm. you know, half of them, maybe a third, will go like, I think it's a band called the Misfits. So that's like, you know, that's it, there is that image that appeals to them, um, and the Misfits are catchy, and Glenn's a great singer. And but but then, you know, you look at a song like Bullet and any it's fucking crazy. Like that song is crazy. And and like think about that from the perspective of somebody who's never really been into punk rock. Right. You've learned a lot about punk rock up to this point. And then and then like here's this person who's singing about the president getting shot and, and singing about like bodily fluids and uh right. you know, it's just like I think that they're fascinated by dancing and he sounds like Morrison and these kids yeah. all know who Jim Morrison is, you know, yeah. that, that style of singing is so much easier for them to digest than, than a lot of the stuff that I cover. Right. So, and then I, I would say black flag and all the Hermosa beach bands and, and, and that whole thing, you, you said you kind of just cover the West coast and, and one class, but I'm sure, you know what kind what songs do you go for for black i think so much of black flag and the circle jerks is that that la scene and that struggle one thing you have with that is you have decline of western civilization to show people to say like hey if you really want to learn more about it you know we have this movie well yeah there's so there's two movies that i have them watch that really help with the american hardcore stuff and that is the movie american hardcore and then decline of western civilization yeah and yeah. so oh, American Heart so Heart, yeah. yeah yeah so they so they watch those like in the week that's like homework assignment they watch those before i start teaching american hardcore so they do have some kind of concept and they get information and that way they're able to ask questions when it comes to black flag it's it's a you know i try to weave in this whole scene aspect so of course it starts with Keith as the singer, right? And then we know in a few in a, you know in 20 minutes we're going to be onto the Circle Jerks and you see the same guy. So I cover the first record and then I cover Jealous again and then I cover Damaged, you know, I play Six Pack. You know, and then, of course, that leads into the fact that in the next class is East Coast Hardcore 
and we're going to see Henry Garfield, you know, and so it ties it all in. So that's a big part of the way I'm trying to teach the class. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's not exhaustive, but I want you to see these people over and over again. So you get a sense of how small this scene was. Yeah. You know, here's this guy that joins Black Flag. He's on the other side of the country and he comes in and he becomes he becomes the lead singer of Black Flag. Is the lead Black Flag has already had three amazing singers, but he like he changes the history of Black Flag. So after working in an ice cream shop with Ian McKay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh it's it but you in the history of punk rock you see this over and over again. These scenes are tiny. The CBGB scene is tiny. The Detroit proto-punk scene is tiny. The London punk scene is tiny. You know, you got the, the the Bromley contingent, the Sex Pistols fan group. And in that group, you've got Billy Idol, Stephen Severin, Susie Sue. You know, all these people in their little tiny senius, their little tiny group of friends. You have, you know, three of the biggest British punk bands that are, are going to exist. Right. It's and, and I think that that really appeals to me. And I think my students are inspired by that. Because I think ultimately what I want them to leave with is a sense of you don't have to do punk rock, but whatever you do, you can do it yourself and look around you at the people around you that inspire you and do something as a group. Now, I know you already explained this, but I know this because, you know, I grew my my house that I grew up in was in walking distance to the IU Music School. So um, I, I, you know, my father was a political science professor at SPIA, but I know enough about the music school to know that this is what, I know you said this, but this is one of the, the, the premier classical music schools. Some of the most yeah. famous classical musicians have come through there. So now that we've talked about what you're doing, it's clear that you know what you're doing as far as teaching the punk rock history and, you know, but how does the music, and you've talked a little bit about how the students react. And I, I get that the young students are, are getting something, but how does the, mu the, the music school, I would think that they must be pretty excited that, that, that they have access to somebody who was on the boots on the ground, as it were, as far as the American hardcore scene teaching this class it's it's a it's a really unique opportunity yeah i mean it's a wonderful environment i i you know any kind of music no matter what it is is magic to me and being around those environments being in those buildings walking past the rehearsal spaces where you're hearing you know world-class young musicians training with world-class teachers it's 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 absolutely magical so it's a real gift to be able to teach in that environment and it also it brings a, a level of seriousness and, you know, respect to the concept of what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the classes are really for students from the other colleges on campus. Mm -hmm. So what I'm trying to do is bring in political science majors to take the class. I'm trying to bring in Kelly Business School students to take the class. Of course, I get some classical musicians, but the point is that a music school like that needs to have income streams. And so the whole music and general studies program is about bringing people from other areas of the university into taking classes. 
in my class, the history of punk class, it's it's worth three arts and humanities credits. So if you come to University of uh, uh, Indiana University, you have to get six arts and humanities credits. If you take my history of punk rock class, there's half of them right there. Ooh, there and you that go. That's good give that <laughs> yeah that and that brings in every time I have a student show up to my class from somewhere else on campus. That's bringing money into the music school. So it's serving a really important function for everybody there. And and because of that and other reasons, uh, I feel like there's a great deal of respect for the program, the music and general studies program, you know, with everybody within the music school. Even though we're kind of a little bit outside, what we're doing is different than what they're doing. Now, you have a unique opportunity in teaching this. You're teaching all these songs by these other bands. And you can mm -hmm. take, for example, Filler by Minor Threat and assign it and say, here's what Ian McKay was trying to say with this song. Or, or, or you can take whatever. But you have a unique opportunity as you were writing punk rock then. Have you taken any Zero Boys songs and talked about your process of, of writing the lyrics and saying... Here's what we were trying to express at this point. Yeah, when I get to Midwest Hardcore, there is a Zero Boy song on the playlist, but just mm -hmm. one song. Mm -hmm. But they are all very aware from very early on. In the very first class, I, I kind of give my uh, my credentials as, as why I'm teaching a class. This is why you know I know what I know, and I try to be uh, as real and humble about it as possible but they know they know who my band are and, and every once in a while i'll get a student that's like you know oh my goodness i really love your band or whatever but um i feel like i spend an appropriate amount of time on the zero boys maybe a little bit more than i would if i wasn't in the band but let's face it the zero boys are not really a big important band uh in the history of punk rock I disagree. But it does but. give it does give me an opportunity to talk about what we were doing and why and how, you yeah. know. Obviously, zero boys mean a lot to me, so uh, I'm I, I'm going to disagree with you there. Now, are you still um, recording bands? Are you still um, recording music? I do very little. I do mostly mixing. I'm here in my home studio right now. I do mostly mixing and mastering, mm -hmm. not so much recording anymore. Uh, okay. So in because we live in the computer age, I have people from all over the world send me multi-track sessions and then I mix them. Um, mm -hmm. Or sometimes they send me mixes and I master them. And most of my clients are are not local. Yeah. And I probably spend, you know, uh, it's 60% of my year is working on audio and 40% of it is teaching classes, something like that. And, and what do you feel like, and, and I'm saying this because I, there's a lot of, I, you know, I know a couple of musicians who listen to this podcast, like, what do you bring to mixing that, you know, that, that you think is, is, is unique in your skill set? So, well, why, why, first why, why of should all, they come to you? <laughs> yeah. Well, first of all, I've got years and years and years of experience. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been making records basically pretty much full-time since 1984. And I've worked with a lot of producers, musicians, other engineers. So my skill set is a sum total of everything that I've learned from those people, plus what I've learned through my own experimentation. Um, if somebody, and a lot of people, 
are making their own records now. So they'll mm. record them on their own little computer systems and things like that. I think that if you can afford to hire someone like me or somebody else with my experience or skill set, you're going to learn so much about what's possible and how it's done. A lot of I work with a lot of young people and I always take the time like if they're mixing their own stuff, you know, and I'm mastering it, I will kick it back to them. I don't think that the low end is right here. I don't, I think you got the vocals too loud, things like that, you know, and it's, that's, so I feel like in some ways I'm always teaching when it comes to younger clients, mm -hmm. but you know, the concept that somebody who is brand new to this and maybe is a good musician and has bought Pro Tools and they're gonna make their own record and it's going to be as impactful or as powerful as it is if you, as it could be if you find the right engineer with experience that's that's an absurd concept mm -hmm. i think yeah so whether it's me or anybody else i and i also think collaboration everything i've ever learned of value almost everything i've ever learned of value in the audio arts is by working some but with somebody who's a little bit older than me or has a different experience you see something once you hear it once and it's immediately your trick so if you if you operate in a vacuum, it just takes a lot longer, I think, to 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 build the skill set right, that you so could get. Before we go, what are some essential? Um, well, I guess you'd have you'd say it's all in the class. But uh, do you have any really funny experiences with um, with any of these songs where you just had a hilarious reaction from a, a student who either really got it or just didn't get it or just what's the funniest experience you have with a, a student reacting to a song or overreacting to a single song do you have any of those well there it's very i try to create an environment where everybody feels like they can express themselves as much as possible and i i think that i have finally figured out a way to do that successfully they understand that i'm an anarchist, like a personal anarchist. And so they feel like whether they're conservatives or liberals, they feel very comfortable in my class saying whatever they want because I, they know I don't give a fuck, you know, about that. I see no real difference. You know, it's all playing a part of the system. And so that is really important. And the bet, but the best information I get from them is in written responses. There's, there's 20 they have to do 20 written responses to questions over the course of the semester. And it's in those that I feel like they really express themselves and, and let me know what their real opinion is. And they will flat out tell me this is the worst fucking shit or this is fucking, you know, I don't get this at all. Why would you make us watch this movie? And then in the same group of responses, there'll be somebody that's like, this is the most amazing movie I've ever seen in my life. I totally understood it. You know, and 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 you'll get this with even super divisive people like Gigi Allen. I might teach Gigi Allen, right. you know, and, and I ask them to watch the documentary, um, the Murder Junkies documentary. And uh, that it, you wouldn't believe it. There'll be like people who, you know, I can't believe I watched this. 
That's not required viewing, by the way. But I can't believe I watched this. This is the worst. This is the worst person in the world. I can't believe they existed. To the other people that are like, this is the only real punk rocker we have covered the entire time. You know, those people who like really look at punk rock through the lens of somebody like Diogenes, who just believed that culture and society was an absolute joke and that we should live as animals that's a you know that's a big component of punk rock so some people get that and some people are repulsed by it and i sit exactly in the middle mm-hmm. well Gigi allen as much as i can't personally stand him i i don't think you could tell the history of punk rock without acknowledging that he existed <laughs> you know um You know, when I and I knew that at first, and that's why I built a class. The the class that he's in is basically the casualties of punk and it covers him and Sid Vicious and Johnny Thunders. And it really looks it's it's all the way at the end of the class. It's after I teach all the pop punk stuff and Green Day. So I want to I want to end on a very intense note because things kind of lighten up in that in that area. And uh so when I first started teaching Gigi Allen, it was like that exact attitude. You can't do this without teaching Gigi Allen. But then it immediately became, how do you justify Gigi Allen? Like, what value does he bring to the table, if any? <laughs> and it's my job to unpack it enough for the students so they can decide whether or not he brings any value to the table, which means I have to point out ways that I think it's possible that he brings value to the table. And those kind of exercises make me a much more varied person. It makes me look at the world in a very different way. It makes me look at myself and my own attitudes in a very different way. And those responses from the students, uh, amplify that because you know in reality do we want to live in a world where Gigi Allen doesn't that there's no room for a Gigi Allen like do we want to live in a world where Gigi Allen doesn't exist oh man that's a hard question for me because I I really struggle with him but at the same time there was a time when I was a teenager when I thought suck my ass it smells was hilarious right so you know yeah and in that yeah he's he's funny the the question here's a question for you is minor threat funny um a couple songs but i think more minor threat channels rage right it channels the frustration of youth and i think um yeah for me that's kind of the value of it you see bad brains to me is a band that's not very funny but as far as punk rock goes but just incredible like there's no feeling in the world like a show opening with the big takeover you know <laughs> like that song is just yeah you know one of the fundamental i could watch the video of them opening the show at, at cbgb's in 1982 with the big takeover a million times and never get tired of watching mm-hmm. it, right? And there's mm-hmm. some feeling about that where they're not necessarily funny, but they, and you know, and it's interesting that you bring that up because Dead Kennedys was the first punk band I heard and it was the humor that appealed to me. But then the seriousness of like the message also appealed to me when I heard 
Bad Brains shortly after that, and I heard Minor Threat, and you know, and somewhere in between, there's the Circle Jerks that have both, <laughs> right? Uh huh. So I yeah, don't know. This, so this is a this is a big this is a big thing for me. This is something that I've thought about a lot. No, Minor Threat are not a funny punk band, so maybe funny isn't the right word. But is there a sense of humor to Straight Edge? I think there is. I think it's fucking, uh, there's a brilliant sense of humor there. Yes, it's rageful. You can have rage and humor at the same time, but the way he presents it, it feels like he's making fun of all of these other people, right? And I think that that comes from a sense, a place of a sense of humor. That's true, and, and they did and, Stepping Stone. They did cover Stepping Stone. <laughs> Well, and you you brought up filler. That's a that's definitely a humorous song. But I mean, even even screaming at a wall is you know that's a that's got a sense of humor to it. Now, if you want to talk about Fugazi, I don't know that there's a sense of humor in Fugazi. So that's the there's the difference to me between. And now we're like splitting hairs, but that's kind of the difference between you know like punk. And whatever Fugazi is doing is that I feel like Fugazi takes itself very seriously and Minor Threat don't. Yeah. Well, they also had that weird cowboy song, too. So, um, yeah, that will steal your money and steal your shows. Like, yeah, well, that's true. And, um, you know, it's funny. I have a friend um who has a satirical uh, straight edge band. He's from there. They were from DC. Oh, good clean fun. I'm not sure if you're, if you're familiar with them, but they came out at a time when the straight edge scene was very serious, you know, in the late nineties. And it was, you know, very militant, you know, and then they did a sarcastic hard straight edge, hardcore band called good clean fun. And, you know, it's funny because Issa and I are really good friends now. But at the time, I remember thinking, not liking that band because they were, I was like too serious about the stuff to, to get into it. Uh -huh. right? And now I, I crack you, up you, at it and, I, and I've and i lightened up right. about it, even though I still care about yeah. being straight edge and all that. But I just, you know. Of course. I just chilled out uh, a little bit. <laughs> but, I, but I think, I do think that that is the component that, that for me, this is the, one of the things that the class has really taught me a lot is, is like, what what is funny or has a sense of humor and what doesn't and how the stuff that doesn't have a sense of humor appeals to me a lot less mm -hmm. um you know it, it, but that's just my own personal journey yeah um you know well, when it, things get too serious then it's 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 less appealing to me yeah and it's funny because None of the very serious bands that I have been friends with who are serious political bands were, they're all funny people in person, you know, they all have great sense uh -huh. of humor, you know, <laughs> uh, Race Trader, you know, that, one, one of the most um, controversial bands of the late 90s hardcore, you know, scene, those guys are hilarious. All of them are very funny, mm -hmm. dudes. very serious. Bands. <laughs> yeah, you know. Well, one thing that we didn't talk about, but we'll, I'll make this very brief, is that I believe that there needs to be experimentation and invention in order for music to be really appealing to me. Right. And so, right. Um, 
one of the reasons that I kind of got less interested in the hardcore scene, you know, after a few years was that it didn't seem to be developing. You know, I felt like Black Flag, Flipper, the Dead Kennedys, Minor Threat, Bad Brains, Circle Jerks, these bands were all very different from each other. Mm -hmm. And, but... One of the things that happens is that as as you know, it turns hardcore kind of turns to thrash metally and stuff. It feels like it loses its sense of humor, and then a lot of bands are kind of following each other. And then you know, that same thing happens in with the straight edge scene. You know, it's like it becomes less varied. But this happens in every form of music. It happens in disco. It happens in R and B. Everybody, you know, you get you get a great leader, and everybody follows that leader. And I'm no expert on straight edge hardcore from the late '80s and '90s, so I'm probably speaking out of turn. Mm-hmm. But you know, but I do think that in order for punk rock to be appealing to me, there has to be some sense of experimentation. Nobody yeah, sounded were, like Minor yeah, Threat were, before yeah. Minor Threat. Yeah. Well, I think that had been the problem. Uh, some of the bands, like, that actually happened with Earth Crisis when they got started getting more influenced by Neurosis. Then, um, you know, and then they their third album, a lot of people, like, jumped ship, and then they did a record that, sounded, that everyone thought sounded like rap metal. And, you know, they were just right. trying to do new things because they didn't want to put out the same record every time. And... You know, hardcore kids are like, no, put out the same record every time. <laughs> you know, and, and uh, work for the Ramones. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, yeah. Okay, it's true. Um, so, Paul, um, just to wrap things up, um, what, how do if someone's an IU student, how do they get into your class? Is there a way for people who don't go to IU or to? Um, Inter- interface with or people who are not in Indiana to interface with what you're doing? Yeah, so the, the classes that I teach, uh, you'd find them under music and general studies. Um, so if you're a student at IU and you just search the course of catalogs, I think it's MUS Z208 is the history of punk rock class. But if you just search punk rock uh, and music and general studies, it's pretty easy to find. I am teaching an online version of the class um, that's condensed. It starts December 20th and uh, ends up uh, February 2nd. It is during the day, so it would be difficult for a lot of working people to take. But if somebody wants to is interested in auditing the online class, I think I can probably allow that to happen. Um, You know, they wouldn't get graded for it and they'd have to, you know, they'd have to follow along mostly quietly and stuff like that, but um, they're they're welcome. And uh, you could email me at p-c-m-a-h-e-r-n at iu.edu. And then I could, you know, I think I can give, because those will be taught through Zoom, and I think I can give Zoom links to people who are just auditing quietly, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there's a so. lot of musicians out there who would who would really get a lot from it, I think. You know, the thing, I, I, own, I believe I own the class. I own all the materials that I built. Eventually, I'll write a book, um, and 
but in the meantime, I might start teaching through one of the online universities so I can teach some evening classes. I just haven't had time with everything else going on to kind of get that going. Um, but I have had several people tell me that they think that there would be interest in that. Oh, uh, gee, I totally think so. Yeah. The, yeah. For me, the big thing with online is I teach the online classes live. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, because they're there, then there can be a question and answer component, at least at the end. Mm. And I'm, I'm, just, I'm just struggling on how I would do that. I think, unfortunately, if I were to teach it through like an online university, a lot of it would be pre-recorded. Yeah. So yeah. I'm just thinking about that. Well, and I think it's really valuable what you're doing. Um, I always, you know, Ian um, and the Discord house, like he keeps track of the history of that whole scene. And I think it's really cool that he does that. And I wish that more, you know, and, and like when I have this experience of talking to people with their individual scenes, like, you know, I wish that there was some kind of database, kind of like internet movie database that was like keeping track of like all the, I know maybe there is, and Discogs has a lot of good information on it. Um, but I would definitely, I think the history of punk rock is so, so important. That's why I wanted to interview you today. And I really yeah. appreciate well, thank you. your time. It's been wonderful. Yeah, I really appreciate your time. Um, you know, the Zero Boys, obviously a big fundamental, um, you know, band for for me and a huge uh, influence on uh, my novel Punk Rock Ghost Story. So um, I really appreciate uh, you giving me some time today and and I hope the listeners got a lot out of this we can um, and you get told people how to get in touch with you are there any other social medias or things where you um, uh, want people to find you or websites or anything mm, mm, no <laughs> no I mean just if somebody wants to get a hold of me they can email me um, I don't really have a website for the classes um, Zero Boys have an Instagram account, but it's it's not very uh, much used. Are you guys um, playing any shows? But yeah. or, any shows or, uh, with the Zero Boys? We played three shows this. We played three shows this year. We don't have anything else booked. Um, what the way we usually do it is if somebody contacts us and they want to do a show and we're all because everybody works and yeah. stuff so and and we can make it happen then we will and we made it ha we made it happen three times this year and and that's about the average you know we'll play two or three shows a year usually we try to do them at festivals you know where there's already an audience you know mm -hmm. seeing other bands those those are the kind of things that we like to do because we can those tend to get people that travel in from a lot you know greater distances so more people have an opportunity to see you when you play at those festivals mm -hmm. and uh shout out to my homie uh john zepps in indianapolis who um was the one who uh knew how much uh, zero boys were important to me and connected us on facebook and said hey you should you should be friends with paul on facebook because uh um he knows how much the zero boys are important to me and i wouldn't have seen your post about this class without that so i i uh shout out to zepps um yeah and, uh, a, a hoosier i miss very dearly so um shout out to him zepps zepps is one of yeah he's such an zepps amazing is one of the greatest player. people in the world yeah, he. That's great. where the Zero Boys. We rehearse in his uh, basement whenever we do rehearse. 
Yeah, that's awesome. No, he's in the mm-hmm. he's in the documentary, um, the the fake documentary we made for uh, Paco's story. So, um, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, he uh, pulls out one of the fake. Is that on? And talks about seeing them with the Zero Boys in the eighties. So <laughs> it's funny stuff. All right, Paul, thank you. For Is that joining. online? Yeah, yeah, I'll send you the link. Um, okay, yeah. great. Because uh, you're in it um footage of the zero boys is in it so um well you'll be hearing from my lawyer then <laughs> right um uh but yeah uh you guys are so important to it and uh i know um we'll uh we'll probably be talking again because i just i had a great time talking about this class i would love to uh to uh to pick your brain about it more uh so thank you for uh doing the class and i hope lots of people take it Thank you, David. Great talking to you.